43 through 51. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the totality of it, the sufficiency of it, the inerrancy of it, the infallibility of it. Help us to hear your words, apply your words. And live out your words. We thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world, who lived, who died, who rose again. Thank you for the worship team that sang of the truths. We thank you for Duane and the elders that have come alongside me in this journey of holding fast to your word, proclaiming your word. May we this morning be blessed by it and not just be hearers, but doers of your word, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we are in week 12 of John 1. I'm glad some of you are smiling. I'm glad you're here. For those that are newer, let me give you an executive summary of where we have been and where we are going today. John 1, 1 opened that the word was with God and the word was God. And here we are at the end of John 1 and Jesus' public ministry is about to begin. In your bulletins, you will notice some changes this week. The main idea is present. The sub points, the scriptures are now put below there. We continue to iterate, not because we want to make it look pretty, but we want to make it effective. Uh, So if there are additional thoughts to enhance your reading and the note taking of God's word, continue to share because we want to get better and better for the glory of God and the good of his people. So this week, we are in John 1, 43 to 51. And let's continue the blessed, joyous journey in John's gospel. Please open your Bibles. Turn to John 1, 43 to 51. My words are only meaningful if they come from God's word. 
And therefore, we want to state what I believe is the main idea from God's word, which is in your bulletins, and it says this. The Son of Man is the bridge between sinful humanity and a glorious, holy God. The Son of Man is the bridge, not a bridge, not one of many bridges, singular the bridge between sinful humanity and a holy God. The incarnation subpoint for those that take notes of Jacob's ladder is found in and through Jesus Christ. And the chasm between heaven and earth has not been bridged based on man. Rather, God came down to earth and bridged the chasm once and for all. Genesis 8, we just learned that the flood subsided. And the response was to create an altar and to sacrifice to God. And the aroma was pleasing to God. The aroma of Christ's sacrifice would not need to be offered again. It was once for all the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Verse 29, repeated again twice. Lost and found, point one. John 1.43, look to your Bibles with me and let's unpack it together. The next day, stop. We are now on day four since the countdown began. Do you remember this? John 1.19, John 1.29, John 1.35, the next day, the next day, and again the next day. And here we go. Jesus Christ, public ministry is about to dawn. So what does Jesus do the day before his first public ministry is revealed? Jesus doesn't go and proclaim one to many, many. He goes side by side to a few. And I think that's very instructive to us. Jesus purposed, verse 43, to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And after finding him, he said to me, follow me. Prior to this, you recall, John the Baptist pointed his disciples to follow Christ. The image that I tried to secure in your minds was, what? Martin Luther pointing to the cross, Christ on the cross, the people looking to the cross, reinforced by a second image, which was the Lamb of God, followed by five groups of people, some focused on it, some with Bibles open, and the wounds of the Lamb of God, the angels attending around it, and the disciples looking on and praising. And here we are in that image that I showed you two weeks ago, the first of the disciples Jesus is now going to call. Prior to this, John the Baptist says, follow him. And you recall from last week, John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God, examine, see the Lamb of God. And what did they do? They followed Jesus. And I purported or I proposed to you that the reason that they followed Jesus was for two reasons. One, physically they 
were told to. So they obeyed their master, their rabbi, their teacher. But they also were curious about the Lamb of God. And we stopped in verse 42 intentionally because in verse 43, what we see now is Jesus purposes and Jesus pursues and Jesus calls. And this is how God works. It's true of your life. And it was true in verse 43 of Philip's life. Prior to this, John the Baptist points, the disciples follow, but now we see the beautiful words in verse 43 by Jesus to Philip and look to your Bibles. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus says to him or said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Is that important? I believe so. God's word is not happenstance. Every detail matters. But I think the big point I want you to catch from this first point is this. This is the model of salvation and discipleship. So if you take notes, please write that. This is the model of salvation and discipleship. What do I mean by that? Jesus calls. Jesus says, follow me. And the response is not optional. That's called an effectual call. It's an effective call. They did not have the ability to say, well, maybe we'll follow you if we feel like it. No, no, no. This is an effective call. There's no response. Do you notice there's not, well, they talked about it. It's immediate. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Verse 45, why is it discipleship? Here's the verse. Philip finds Nathanael. And what does he say to him? Look to God's word. We have found him of who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Who found who? Go back in your Bibles. Verse 43. The next day he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee. That's the subject. And he, Jesus, found Philip. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Bible taken out of context can become heresy, miscalculation, and misapplication. Verse 43, the clear subject here is it's all about Christ Jesus. But in verse 45, we see the model of discipleship. Philip finds Nathaniel and he says to him, we have found him of who or whom Moses and the law and all the, also the prophets wrote. That's code for what? This is the responsive moment. Moses, the law, the prophets, what is that code for, brothers and sisters? Excuse me? The Old Testament, thank you. Do you notice it's not Moses, the Pentateuch, the Moses and the prophets? What does that sound like to you? Do you remember in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus when Jesus 
purposes to walk alongside how many disciples? Two, one named, one unnamed. And do you remember what he does? Beginning in Moses and the law and all of the prophets, he revealed to him them where he was to be found. Paraphrase. And their hearts burned. This is discipleship, verse 45. A true disciple of Jesus hears the call. A true disciple of Jesus is found by Jesus. He seeks you. He calls you just like he found Philip. A true disciple of Jesus responds to his call by repenting and believing in the divine identity of Jesus Christ. We're going to get to the divine identity. How important is Jesus' identity? John the Apostle ascribes 10 titles of divinity in the first chapter to Jesus alone. 10 titles. We'll explore them. A true disciple of Jesus then tells others of this unspeakable good news. Dwayne, you're called today to take your... By the way, when you said tummy, did anybody else notice Steve's face? I enjoyed that thoroughly. Okay? Here's the thing. One of my exhortations to you today is going to be this. Buy the baked goods. Share the baked goods. In fact, I'll, add, I'll eat some of the baked goods. So I appreciate your restraint. But tell of the good news. Invite people to church. This is where hope is found. Not because of my words, but because of God's word. Which is proclaimed. Which is heralded. Which is witnessed. Which is held high. Remember... It always starts with Jesus. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. The lost are meant to find others and tell them of the good news and the identity of Jesus Christ, what he has done in your and my place. They come to Jesus not on their own doing. Critical point. They come to Jesus not on their own doing, nor did you. But based on him standing at the door and him knocking, Romans 3.20. On one level, it is true that Philip found Nathaniel. Would you agree with me? On one level, it's true. Philip does find Nathaniel. But it's critically important to understand that the only reason that he could seek for Jesus in the first place is that he was already found by him and called by him, firstly. How do I know that's true? Dwayne says Wednesday night, and by the way, I exhort you to attend that scripture for living. We try every week to attend. Show up. Hear God's word. Apply God's word. If you have time, and if it's not there, I exhort you, as Dwayne has said, do it elsewhere. But do it. No one can come to me, John 6, 44, verse A, first part of it, unless... The Father who has sent me draws him. John 15, verse 6. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why do I bring up scripture for living? One of the axioms, one of the sayings that happens every week is use scripture to interpret scripture. And scripture is very clear. You didn't choose God. He chose you. Praise God. And tell others. Your telling of the others will not in of itself, create their salvation. For that's entirely an act of God. But we have a responsibility. Therefore, 
there are three exhortations, three applications that I want you to take note of, please. By understanding his choosing in your life and in mine, there are three explicit calls to action in the life of a disciple of Jesus, and they are this. Thankfulness, thankfulness, number one. Humility, number two. And obedience, number three. Thankfulness for his seeking you when you were blinded by your own sins, floundering in your lost ways. Thankfulness for his sacrificial death, the Lamb of God who came to take away your sins and mine. Humility. Humility. We've been in meetings so many times, so many times in church leadership where our wisdom fails, our words fail, and we humbly go to the Bible We look to God's word. We look to apply God's word. And that is the effectiveness of leadership, not our words. We humbly want to seek God's word and apply God's word. Are you doing the same? We need to do the same. Humbly, humility for you did not, you could not, you will not contribute anything to your own saving faith. Humility resulting in obedience, not of your old self where you perceived yourself to be the master of your life, but now living for your new master. Obedience. Focusing on getting to know Christ. Thank you, Dwayne, for showing the clock and the Bible. It actually was very convicting of me this morning because I didn't spend enough time in that this morning. And so thank you for sharing that. that, that that's the spirit convicting me. And I pray it did to you too. Focus on getting to know Christ through God's word, through the Bible. Obedience in living for Christ, sacrificially, servant-heartedly. Obedience to delighting in Christ. Delighting in Christ. Is your joy made complete, Philippians 2.2, by seeing others coming to Christ, following Christ? Obedience and sharing about Christ. We have neighbors. None of them come to church. Yours? You drive by them, we drive by them. We wave hi. They're not dressed for church. They're not going to church. Where are they going to? See, if we love our people around us, we want to share the good news of Christ. And so... Let us start with the low-hanging fruit. What does that mean? We have people around us. We have people in our neighborhood that know I'm a pastor. If I don't invite them to church, exhort them to come to church, walk alongside them, invite them into our homes, I'm not really a good neighbor, am I? I really am not loving my neighbor as myself because I know the criticalness of being here on a Sunday morning. Obedience to giving instruction by giving none other than the Lord Jesus himself to go into all the world, he instructed, and make disciples of all nations. D.A. Carson adds, a disciple seeking to tell others is the foundational principle of true Christian expansion ever since the new followers of Jesus. The belief in Jesus is manifested in bearing witness of Jesus to others. 
And then they are to likewise believe and tell others. It's not specified, but implied that Philip followed. It's immediate. It's effective. And he finds others. And he tells others. And he says, the one that we've been seeking, the one that we've been wanting, the one that we've been talking about and praying for and hoping for is here. It was not his intelligence. That was God's revelation that opened those truths up. And he told those who he loved, his friend. We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote that Jesus, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip declares to his friend, Jesus was the fulfillment of all the scriptures, that the Old Testament promises. Jesus is, is the one of the law, the prophets. Another way of saying the entire Hebrew scriptures is being fulfilled in who's coming. Later in John's gospel, Jesus makes a similar attestation. Look to John 5, 39 quickly. Flip over to there. What does God's word say? John 5, verse 39. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Jesus is exceedingly clear that what came before is proclaiming of who is in front of them. Jesus clearly knew the word of God. But Jesus also displays a multi-level knowledge of mankind. What he sees and what he knows. Point two. Verses 46 to 48. Before we go forward, go back one verse with me. Philip found Nathanael, verse 45. Look to your Bibles, please. And he said to them, We have found him in whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Let's stop there. Is that an arrogant statement? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathanael was from Cana. How do I know that? John 21, verse 2. This is a Galilean town where the people from Galilee despised the people of Nazareth. Did you know that? And here we find out where's Jesus from? The place that they despise. And the first person he calls, tells the first person that says, can this even be possible? Do you remember what Jesus said in verse 39? Come and you will see. Future tense. What happens here in relation to the question that's posed in verse 46? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip says to him. Come and see. This is critical. What's happening here is a future tense and a present tense. The exact same statement, a small pivot, a very important pivot. Come and see. Present tense. Jesus before says to them, you will see, you will understand, both in your faith and in eschatology. You will eventually understand what the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world actually means. Come and see. You will see. 
That's not what he says here. Come and see, verse 46b. Philip responds similarly in relations to Nathanael's question. Meaning, his disciples will understand later in greater detail. But in the present, there's a current revelation as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Nathanael approaches Jesus, shows his knowledge of what is happening both on the inside and on the outside. Jesus' words, look to verse 47. Jesus sees or saw Nathanael coming to him, and he responds saying, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. If this question was arrogant, would Jesus have responded in that way? Fascinating question. Wrestle it through after. Jesus' words are precise. It's not a question mark. Do you think Jesus knows what's in this man? Precisely. So what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying he's without sin? We know that not to be true. Romans 3.23 affirms that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus in John 20, or 2, 24 to 25, attests that he knows what's in mankind. Listen to God's word. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Nathaniel, I propose, asks an honest question, which I'm confident he was honestly wrestling with. I don't think it was as arrogant as the question first sounds. I think he's been trained that this area isn't where the Messiah is coming from. And yet, we have to wrestle with this question. Jesus, again, is aware not only of who is coming, but what is inside of him. Nathaniel, in verse 48, looked down to God's word, says to Jesus, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Verse 48, Nathanael asks an honest question. How do you know me? To which Jesus replies, I saw you. Was Jesus present? Okay. I see some heads nodding to the left and the right, not up and down. Good answer. <laughs> Notice the correlation between believing, knowing, and seeing. Jesus reorients the reason that Nathaniel is here. It starts with Jesus and not with man. Mankind likes to see before believing. You know the expression, seeing is believing? You've heard it? Jesus reorients the entire question and says, believing is seeing. He says, you will see, verse 39. And here it says, come and see, present tense. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This is the one that the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to. And what does he do? He goes and finds one. Who tells one? Why is Christianity so effective? Why will it never be snuffed out? Ever. It didn't start 
with hundreds. It started with a few in close discipleship and the Holy Spirit blessing the ministry therein. What's the exhortation to us? Who are you telling about Christ? Go and find someone. Tell them this week, this day. Use the baked goods. Use your neighborhood. Use your workplaces. Tell them of the good news of who has come because you love them. Jesus finds him. We know for those that are in Christ the hope that's within us. Jesus turns the entire world upside down. John 20, verse 28 to 29. Blessed are those who believe and who have not seen. For now, Jesus gently and patiently simply displays his sovereignty by showing his sight is not predicated on being present with Nathaniel. Nor is Jesus' knowledge limited to his physical sight, for he knows what's inside man. And only the divine, only God knows those two. Which takes us to our third point, our final point, our longest point. The divine titles of Jesus Christ. For those that have not journeyed with us through the wilderness, so to speak, to the end of John 1, there are 10 divine titles ascribed in John 1 to Jesus Christ. Here they are. The Word, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. God, verse 1. How long does it take John, the apostle, to say who is it? One verse, he says, and the word was with God and the word was God. So he is, the title, the first title is the word. The second title is God. The third title is ascribed to Jesus is the light. Do you remember that? The true light was coming into the world. The word, God, light. Verse 17, Jesus Christ Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You realize Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? Okay. It's always good to make sure that's clear. A lot of people think that's true. It's a title, a divine title ascribed to Jesus. The Lamb of God, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 38. Rabbi, the Word, God, light, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, Rabbi. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Messiah, verse 41. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And then in rapid fire in verse 49 in this morning's sermon text, we're going to get three more titles ascribed to Jesus Christ before John is done before the public ministry of Christ starts, he wants to ground the awareness of who Christ is and who we are in relation to Jesus. And what does he say? You are the son of God, verse 49. Look down to your Bibles. Nathanael said, how do you know me? Verse 48, Jesus answered and says to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Jesus answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Two more titles given to Jesus in rapid fire. 
And then finally, in verse 51, the title for this morning's sermon, the son of man, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. You may not know this, but if you were asked a Bible trivia quiz later today, you'll get one right for sure if you pay attention to this. Here it is. What is Jesus' favorite title about himself? Thank you for paying attention to the question. The son of man. How many times is it used of Jesus? Of himself. 83 times. 83 times Jesus calls himself the son of man. In your Bibles, look to your Bibles. Don't listen to my word. You will notice in verse 51, son is a big S, man is a big M. Normally when you write the word son and man, you don't capitalize it. That's an editor decision, a rightly editor decided after as it's being translated, which is this is a divine title of Christ, son of man. He was the son of man. That is a human being, but he's also the son of God. Verse 49, and he always has existed as the eternal begotten one. Verse one, he comes forth from the father forever. Verse one, he has always been. Verse one, he will always be. Verse one, John starts with the eternality and ends in verse one with the humanity. You see what he's doing? He's fully God, he's fully man, and because of those two truths, everything that's going to come after is going to take us to John 20, 31. These things were written so that all the signs, all the things that were written were written so that you may believe, and by believing, you may have life in his name, Christ's name. He's always been, he always will be. He's the second person in the Trinity. Jesus is born of a virgin. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary. Thus, he is fully human. He's fully God because God's the Father. We've talked about that. The Bible wants to emphasize his full human nature. So there's a common understanding that we should be grounding the rest of John, which is both he's divine and he's human. Two natures, one person. The more sophisticated, pay careful attention to my words here, please. The more sophisticated and important historical insight as the son of man doesn't merely align him with humanity. It's more likely taken from the book of Daniel. Open your books to Daniel 7. Open the Bible, please. Daniel 7. And particularly, I want you to look to verse 13 and 14. I love to hear God's word. The rustling of the pages. The electronic, you could just pretend like you're doing it. Okay? Thank you. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And if you read the entire chapter, you're going to see that the Son of Man is a very exalted figure, not just of a human figure, but an exalted figure. It was Jesus' favorite self-designation. And I believe this particular point in the Bible is why Jesus is recalling back and drawing this and applying it to him right here. This is the first time in John's gospel, the first time 
He's going to use it 13 times. This is the first time that Jesus uses it of himself. Look to Daniel 7, verse 13. I kept looking into the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. They were not expecting the Messiah, I firmly believe this, to use the term son of man about himself. But Jesus 83 times says, capital S, capital M, fully God, John 1, fully man, John 1, 51, the son of man has arrived. This is God, son of God, verse 49, king of Israel, verse 49, son of man. Because unless he's fully man, go back to 29, it's impossible for him to die and take away the sin of the world. God does not die. And so he's interconnecting rich, deep, theological, doctrinal beliefs that are so interwoven with the rest of the New Testament that are pointing forward. And he says, look, Moses, the law, the prophets, here it is. And all that sacrificial system that we had, that we just read about in Genesis 8, is going to forever change. The Son of Man is apparent. He's here. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his... Second Bible trivia question. Give his what? His life. As a ransom to some? Correct. Well, actually, no. To many. Not to all. It's not applied to all. It's effective for all, but not all will come. And therefore, the effectiveness is to the many. And so, he calls himself the Son of Man very often. Two concluding thoughts in relation to this beautiful, I don't want to leave John chapter 1. Maybe you want me to leave John chapter 1, but I've been dwelling and loving John chapter 1. I hope you have enjoyed the journey. We're going to go a lot faster as we get into John 2, which saddens me. Maybe not you. While Jesus is speaking to Nathanael about the future sight as a disciple of Jesus, the promise made to you is plural. Look down to your Bibles and look to verse 51. Two last concluding thoughts, very important thoughts, I pray, by God's spirit and direction. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. In the Greek, the you is plural after the comma. You will see heaven, heavens open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's literally hours from Jesus' first miracle, first sign. And his last comment that is recorded by John is this. Truly, truly, which is a way of saying, pay attention. 
this is important. This is bold. That's the way it works back here because you couldn't use punctuation. When you repeat a word, it's important. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, you, plural, will see heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. John the Apostle, the writer of the gospel, is so clear the signs which are done in the presence of disciples are written that he actually says his purpose statement by the divine inspiration of the Spirit in John 20, 31, as I've quoted to you. He says all of what's going to happen, all of these things that are going to happen from John 2 and on, and all these words and all these grounding, all these rich doctrinal truths are written so that you will believe, and by believing you will have life eternally in his name. Connect the dots from the plural you to the second point. John 1.51. There's a direct reference here to Jacob's ladder. So if you open up your Bibles, I'll read it to you to save everybody flipping again. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus' words are just so rich. Do you get what he's doing here? He's tying it to Daniel and Genesis and going, boom. I'm going to take something that you're not expecting. I'm going to apply it to me in two ways in one statement. And listen to what he says. God's word, Genesis 28, 10 to 13. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and he went down to Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there. And because the sun had set, he took one of the stones of that place and he put it under his head. And he lay down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Jesus takes a term from Daniel and he takes a narrative from Genesis 28. And he says this. Back then, God opened up through a vision this ladder. But now he says, the son of man, not just to the Jews, but to the Jews and the Gentiles, is going to form a permanent bridge, not a temporal bridge. And it will be derived from God to man in that order. That's what's happening in verse 51. In John's gospel, the term son of man here is applied. Human speaking, heavenly speaking. Jesus means to communicate these through the divine usage of this title. The point is simply this. Why is Jesus called the Son of Man? Here they go in rapid fire. Jesus is the new Bethel. Genesis 28, verse 19. Jesus is now and forever the house of God. Jesus 28, verse 22. Jesus is now the place where God is present. If you go back and read Genesis 28, I challenge you to do it. And look for every reference where God makes a comment 
that he initiates something where he is present. And then it says in Genesis 28, 17, there's a gate. The Bible interprets the Bible. Scripture is to be applied to Scripture. John 10, we're going to learn maybe at some point in the next year or two. John 10, verse 9. Jesus is the gate of heaven. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Not he might be saved, not he could be saved. He will be saved. And will come in and go out and will find pasture. Heaven has opened. Jesus has appeared. Heaven has opened and Jesus has appeared. And from now on, Jesus will be the place where God appears most clearly among men and where men find their way into fellowship with God. There's no holy geographic place anymore. There's no place where God designates as a meeting place for mankind. The Son of Man has come. Jesus alone is that meeting place. The Son of Man is the bridge between sinful humanity and a holy God. Big idea. That's how I started. The incarnation of Jacob's ladder is found in and through Jesus Christ. And the chasm between heaven and earth has not been bridged because man came up, but rather God came down to earth. And so we end John 1 with 12 weeks, which I pray has been rich information to your minds. I pray that you know God's word deeper. I pray I do, firstly. But I compel and exhort, if it just puffs you up, then we've failed. Let's call to action. How are your hearts affected because of the 10 divine titles of Jesus Christ? How are our hearts affected because Jesus is the Lamb of God who come and came to take away the sin of the world? How do we apply John 1 today? Seven applications. They're going to come fast. And here they are. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, recognize that God alone initiates faith. And perhaps you've been convicted this morning online, in person, or been stirred, if you will, through the last 11, 12 weeks. And you feel that the Lord is standing at the door and knocking. And you feel... I'm using the word feel carefully. That God is calling you to faith. Take your feelings and go to facts. Go to God's word. If God is calling, you will respond. But don't put it off. Respond. Repent and believe. And then tell me, tell an elder, tell somebody in this church. Because... We want to come alongside you. We would love, we'd be honored to walk alongside you in your journey of faith. It would be the best news we could ever, ever have. And we would ascribe all of its effectiveness to God and none of it to us. Perhaps you're younger. I'm going to speak to the younger people in the audience, here and online. If you're listening and feeling this way, talk to your parents. Talk to your loved ones. And 
Let them come to us to join them and you in this journey. I know that whether I'm looking at Jeremy or Sydney, the youth, you know, just because people show up Wednesday night doesn't mean that they walk with Christ. You know, they might hear this message and God might convict them of their sins and they might come to faith, which is all a work of the Spirit and of Christ. But we want to join them in that journey. And so we don't assume just because you're here that you're part of the family. We would love you to be part of the family, but I never want to make that false because it would be critical error on my part as your pastor. Come to faith. Let us join you in the journey. There's nothing that we do in church leadership that's more important, important than pointing people to Christ, just like Luther did from that picture, and pursuing the sheep which he calls and he cares and commissions us to care for the flock of God. Point three, if you're not as young, that's a polite way of saying you're not young, and you know God is at work in your life, and you believe God is calling you to faith in him, Please talk to me directly. Now, Dwayne said something important. If you notice on his slide, he said, there's a woman to contact, which is his dear wife. My dear wife is right here. So don't do things in isolation. Let us know, us, plural, if God is stirring in your heart. Talk to a woman, but make sure I know as well. And the elders. So come in directly, but come directly. Does that make sense? Because we want, to, we want to ensure that there's a mentoring, a discipling, and a care for the body of this church. Men, come directly. Women, come indirectly. But we will come alongside you. So whether, I haven't talked to my wife, but I'm offering her just like Dwayne did. So maybe we'll have lots of phone calls. That's good. Four. Practical advice for believers in Jesus Christ. Go buy baked goods. Stop. But don't just share the goodies. Share the good news. Point five. Maybe you're a little less confident or nervous on how to do this. Use the baked good to invite people to the church. Turn the sticker around. Tell them of our church. Tell them when we meet. And just give it to them. Invite them here. Point six. Use the baked goods to invite your neighbors to our two, notice the word two, Christmas services. 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. on the 24th. It is the 5 p.m. service. Somebody asked me and they said, well, what is the purpose of the 5 p.m.? And I said, evangelistic. This is a wonderful candlelight service that we're working on that you can invite a non-Christian in a safe way. Everybody comes to church, right? The Christmas and the Easter folks. This is not an odd time of year to invite them to church. So invite them. Come alongside them. Give them some baked goods. Bring them. Non-Christian family members. You're going to meet with them that night? It's going to be a 5 p.m. service. Bring them here first. Here the good news of Christ. We're going to go back to John 1.14. That morning we're going to be in John 3.16. And we're going to have a candlelight service that's a hymnology through the years. It's going to be special. Seventh. Oh, and there's going to be a card that's coming 
the first week of December that will allow you to go to your neighbors, to go to your family members, to invite them to church. Use it. Seven, final. One of my teachers, Dr. Bucher, in the personal evangelism class, both Don and I have been blessed by his teaching, said the following to me. He moved to Chicago and he and his wife had moved into their neighborhood. And he said his wife was a great bake baker. And so what she did is they baked goods and they gave it to all their neighbors. And they invited them into their home. And then they had meals together. And then eventually their subdivision became a Bible study. How crazy is that? So my question to you is, who in our neighborhood are we inviting into our homes? It's easy to invite them into the church, but I think we need to invite people into our homes. Because in doing so, they're going to do life with you and see your life. And you know what? If you do family worship, which I exhort you to do, I didn't do it well until years ago, and then we tried to start to do it. Read the Bible at dinner. Pray the Bible. Share of the good news. Just do life with your neighbors. You want to know something? Where else are they going to get that exposure? In this world, they're not getting it anywhere else, I promise you. So just bring them into your life and just say, hey, we're kind of weird. We pray before a meal. Guess what? They're going to let you. Maybe afterwards you read a piece of scripture and you just pray with your kids. They're going to let you. And they might just come back again. And so do life with neighbors. Invite them into your home. Use baked goods. But do it. See, God, this isn't optional. Jesus found them, but they were to tell others. So let's go do it. Now, you've been patient because it's 1125 and baked goods stand between me and they wafting under the door. And so I'm going to conclude with a prayer and then there'll be a song and then there'll be the releasing of the bulls for the frenzy to the baked goods. I will tell you this, the prices on them are suggested, meaning they're a minimum. Let's go bless our international missionaries, okay? Let's send them a clear message that not only do we want bigger tummies and we want our neighbors to be coming to church, but we want to send them a message that we stand beside them and behind them in our support of them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy, what a privilege it has been to journey through John's first chapter of your word in this precious gospel. I pray that many have come to love you deeper, understand your word richer, and apply it with more effectiveness. We ascribe all honor, all glory to you, to your word, and we want to praise and acknowledge who you are with our heartfelt thanks. As we enter into week of thanksgiving, may our biggest thanks be to your calling for us when we were lost, darkened, and unable to come to you without you coming to us. Thank you for coming down to earth, Jesus, to live to die as the lamb in our place, to which we simply pause and praise you and express our heartfelt thanks.